Welcome everyone. Shalom Aleichem. Hope everybody's having a good day. Today's a very special day. Today is the 26th day of Tammuz. So first of all, the 26th day of Tammuz is of course the most important day of the year because it's my birthday. And besides that, it's also my son's bar mitzvah. And, you know, Chazal say that when Mashiach comes, the three weeks will be transformed into days of uh, Simcha and happiness. <clears throat> so that means uh, Shavasavatamas will be a Yamtif and Tishabav will be a Yamtif. But there's only one day in the three weeks that's Chavav, the Shem Havaya. And 26 Tamas too. So probably the 26th day of Tamas will be a Yamtif also. Okay, today I want to talk about. Um, an episode in Jewish history. Excuse me, uh, you want to send out the, uh, yeah, there, there, there are no Makairos today. And, um, I want to talk about an episode in Jewish history. Um, I will have the opportunity in two days to be standing there at that Makaim. I can't say it's a privilege to be at that place. It's not a, a pleasant Makaim. But it's one that is worthy of our attention. If we look at, the 41st kinnah that we say on Tisha B'av, the kinnah begins, Shali Srufa Ba'ish. And this kinnah mourns the burning of the 24 cartloads of Shas and the commentaries publicly in the streets of Paris in the year 1242. So you could go to the Louvre today and think you're going to an art museum and uh, not saying that you should go in there you know, <laughs> we know one thing the Chumash says about a makam like that, ervas davar. so, you know, ask your local Orthodox rabbi about the appropriateness of that. But actually in the square in front of the Louvre is the square where in 1242 they burnt 24 cart, uh, cartloads of Shas. Now the author of the Kinnah was the Marami Rotenberg. Uh, one of the last of the Balei Atoisvis. In fact, the Chida points out in the Shem Agdoilim. If you look at Masech Yuma, you'll notice the Toisvisin were written in a little bit of a different style than other Toisvisin and Shas. And in fact, it's because the author of Toisvis in Masech Yuma is the Maram Meirotenberg. Maram was a prolific author. He wrote over a thousand Chuvais. And the Yam Shel Shloimosh says about the Maram, um, the Maram was a student of the Arzarua. That's very interesting. Who's the Arzarua? Rabbi Yitzchak of Vina. The reason why he's called Arzarua is after the Sefer he wrote Arzarua. And we've spoken out that the reason why he named his Sefer Arzarua is because he was writing about how to spell different names in Gitin. And he had a Shaila about the name Akiva. How do you spell Akiva? Do you spell Akiva with a Aleph at the end or do you spell Akiva with a He at the end? And he had a dream and in the dream Hashem showed him the Pasuk Oyer, Zarua, Latzadik, Uli Yishrei, Lev, Simcha. And he realized that the Soyfei Tevois of these words spell out Reish, Ayin, Kuf, Yud, Vez, He. And from there he derived that Akiva spelled with a He. By the way, we don't Paskin that way. We Paskin, you spell Akiva with an Aleph. The Maram was born in 1220, and in the second half of the 13th century, he's the leader of German Jewry. In the 
final years of Maram's life, it became intolerable to live in Germany. Pogroms, taxes, blood libels. Many Jews had to flee, and they made the difficult trip to Eretz Yisrael. The emperor, Rudolf I, didn't want to lose his Jewish population. It was adversely affecting the economy, so he declared in 1286 that Jews were his personal property, serfs of the emperor's treasury. No one was allowed to leave Germany. Anyone who did had their property confiscated. The Maram attempted to flee, but he was recognized, of course, by a Jewish apostate. By the way, the biggest problems in the history of the Jewish people were inflicted on the Jewish people by Jews. Okay? The Spanish Inquisition, the most vicious inquisitors, including Turkomada, had Jewish blood. <laughs> what what the Russian Revolution could not accomplish in 10 years, the Bolsheviks, who were led by uh, Jewish um, Bolsheviks, uh, destroyed our people more than anybody else. This is a, a constant problem. The biggest threat to Judaism is the, the falsifiers of, of our religion. Anyway, the Maram tries to flee with his family, and he's recognized by a Jewish apostate at Lombardy, and the emperor imprisoned him in a castle in Eisenheim. And a great ransom was demanded, 23,000 talents of silver, and the Maram Paskin that the community was not allowed to redeem him, because it says in Gittin, Ein poidin es hashvuyim, yasser mikadei demehem. Right? You're now to redeem captives more than their value, because we're afraid that it would just encourage the Gentiles to kidnap more. <clears throat> and um, the Rush, on the other hand, as we're going to see, was the primary disciple of Maram in Rotenberg. He disagreed with the Maram. He said that for the God of Hadar, you're allowed to pay an exorbitant sum. So anyway, uh, the 23,000 talents were actually um, raised by... A, uh, um, a wealthy man by the name of Alexander Wimfim. He paid for uh, the Maram's release. And as we mentioned, the Rush disagreed with the Maram. And the Rush personally guaranteed that he would raise the requisite son, son, but unfortunately the Maram died by 1293. The Rush raises the sum. The problem is now the Rush is afraid that he's next. And... Um, they held the remains of the Maram uh, hostage uh, and the Rush basically had to flee to Spain where he died in um, 1327. Now the, the whole story of when the Rush came to Spain and he tried, he was uh, received very warmly in Spain and he was, he was uh, elevated to the status of the, one of the leading Rabbanim. But the one thing he couldn't do is he could not change the Sephardic customs, which he attempted to do. Well, okay, so it's very interesting. They tried, um, when the Maram died, the, they would not release his remains until, as we mentioned, Alexander Wimfen paid for the release on condition that he'd be allowed to be buried one day right next to the Maram. And uh, incredibly, although there are very, very few kvarim of Rishonim today, you could still go to the cavern of the Marami Rotenberg, and buried right next to him is Alexander Wimfim. Now, during the period that the Maram was imprisoned, he was very active. 
Shilas came to him from all over the world. Many of his Talmidim were allowed access into his prison cell. And many of his teachings he taught while he was in prison are recorded. So for example, the Tashbets written by a student of the Maram, the Tashbets is Rabbeinu Shimshon Bar Tzadik, he records 590 Piskei Dinim that the Maram taught him while in jail. I'll tell you a few of them. One is Rabbi Maskowitz. You ready for this one? You're going to like this one. The Tashbet said, what does the word Yisrael stand for? What's the meaning of it? The Tashbet says, Yisrael stands for, Yud stands for Yaakov, Yitzchak. The Shin stands for Sarah. The Resh stands for Rivka Rachel. The Aleph stands for Avraham. And the Lamed stands for Leah. Yisrael encompasses all the Avais and the Yimais. That was one of the revelations of the Marame Rotenberg when he was in jail. And <clears throat> the Tashbets writes in Ois Tav Tes Vav that the Maram taught him as follows. That Kisha Adam Goimer Hashem. When a person makes up his mind to give up his life for Hashem, the Yimsar Hashem, he gives up his life for the ultimate challenge. Then whatever they do to him, whether they stone you, whether they burn you, whether they bury you alive, it doesn't hurt. When a person makes up his mind to give up their life, Hashem, there's no pain involved. And Maram brought a raya from the Mesoira. Two times in Tanakh it says, Hikuni. It says, Hikuni Pitsauni. He smites me. He wounds me. And it says, Hikuni Bal Chalisi. He smites me. And I am not sickened. This teaches me. Kishahem Hikuni Upitsauni. That when the Goyim hit and they wound, Bal Chalisi, it doesn't hurt. That's a tradition that the Maram taught when he was imprisoned in Ein Tzishayim. And the Maram brought a raya. He says, V'teida shekeinu, I'll bring you a proof. The proof is, She'ein l'cha adam ba'olam. There's no one in the world. Shemhoya maga be'ezva getana be'eshetzak. Is there anyone in the world they could put their hand in fire and not scream? No. Anyone who puts their hand in fire is going to scream. But, V'rabim moistrim atzim l'seva, many have given up their life to be burned. Ulaha they don't scream not oi, and they don't scream avoy. So this indicates, says Maram, when a person gives up, makes up their mind to die, Kiddush Hashem, they are not harmed. Well, Oyam Venoira, it's amazing that the king of France in the time in 1242 was King Louis IX, known as Saint Louis not for his piety to the Jewish people, but rather for his religious zealousness, which was expressed most clearly by the favor he showed Jewish apostates. St. Louis, by the way, and that's the reason why the Cardinals have never won the pennant. Anyway, Nicholas Donen was a Jewish apostate who was especially vicious to his uh, co-religionists, and he caused personally 
the baptism of the Jews of Anjoy and Potier, 500 Jews under the threat of death, baptized, while the majority of the Jews, 3,000 in all, were all murdered on Kedesh Hashem. Now this is very important to know. And that is there was a very big difference between Sephardic Jewry and French Jewry. While Sephardic Jewry, there were instances of hundreds of thousands of forced conversions. In Ashkenazic Jewry, in France, it was, a, it was a rarity. Jews did not allow themselves to be baptized. They sooner were Moiser Nefesh Al-Kiddush Hashem. <coughs> and the, the distinction, to a great degree, lay in the, uh, the hundreds of Rishonim that had a very profound influence in France. Now, there was an apostate by, uh, as we mentioned, Nicholas Donin. He realized that the backbone and the foundation of Judaism was the oral law, the Gemara. And therefore he made a formal accusation to Pope Gregory IX that the Talmud contained passages that were heretical to Christianity. The Pope ordered all the copies of the Talmud to be confiscated. And in March 3rd, 1240, while the Jews were in Shul, all copies of the Shas were forcefully confiscated. On June 12th, a public debate was held in Paris between Nicholas Donin and four of the most eminent Rabbanim in Paris, Rabbi Chil of Paris, Rabbi Moshe of Kusi, the Smag. And as you can imagine, this was a very fair trial. Well, the verdict was a foregone conclusion before it even began. The Talmud would have been burnt immediately if not for the Jews' only ally in the Bishop of Sens. His arguments averted the decree for one year. But at the end of the year, the bishop convulsed and he died in the presence of King Louis. Well, the priests were able to convince the king that God had punished the bishop for defending the Talmud. The Talmud was condemned to be burned. 1,200 manuscripts of the Talmud were confiscated. And we have to understand that, you know, this, this was 200 years before the uh, advent of the printing press and a volume of Shas could take years to write. Many recently written works of the Rishonim were burnt and destroyed forever. And uh, here's what I want to focus on this morning. When did the burning take place? The burning of the 24 wagon loads of Svarim occurred Erev Shabbos Parshas Chukas. The Shiboile Haleket writes, Rabbi Sholek was written by Rabbi Sidkiah ben Avraham Haroife. He writes in Simon Reish Samach Gimel that the Rabbanam of the time inquired from the heavens via a Sheilas Chaloim, a dream, which is a way to inquire from the heavens to discover if the decree was indeed decreed from the Rabban And on Erev Shabbos Parshas Chukas, they received the following response, Da Gezeras Oiraisa, this is the decree of the Torah. Da Gezeras Oiraisa is the Targum, the Aramaic translation of the first words of Parshas Chukas, Zois Chukas HaTorah. By the way, so to me this is very interesting. In other words, if you were to ask, well, what's the reason why Hashem allowed the Talmud to be burnt? I would have said the reason that was communicated via the heavens, was Zois Chukas It's a decree, it's a heavenly decree. It's a chayk. But I want to share with you another piece of information. 
Because while the Shibole Aleket says that they made a She'elas Chaloim, and the uh, She'elas Chaloim came back with a response that it was a Choyk, it was Dag Zeras there was another take on this. Incredibly, the tragedy was not viewed as a mysterious suffering that the Jewish people had to undergo. But there was an understanding, it was a direct punishment and divine retribution for the destruction of the works of the Rambam. Now, you have to understand, there's a very big difference between French Jewry and Spanish Jewry. French Jewry were single-minded in their focus on the Talmud and its commentaries and the study of Torah to the exclusion of all other disciplines, including philosophy and mathematics. The Rashi and the Toysvis were interested in the Talmud and the Talmud only. But in in Spain, they were broader. They were interested in philosophy, poetry, art, and many Rishonim, especially in southern France, actually more in northern France, but even though in, in Provence there were many who defended the Rambam, but the Rambam had his most outspoken adversaries in southern France. They did not agree with the Rambam's philosophical ideas in the Yad HaZog and Sefer HaMadim or Nebuchim. And some Rishonim, most notably Rav Shloyma Min Hahar and Rabbeinu Yoyna, they put the works of the Rambam in Cherem. The controversy erupted and some of the members of the anti-Rambam camp submitted the works of the Rambam to the monks of the Dominican order to determine whether the works were heretical or not. The monks were only too eager to declare the Rambam's works heretical and the works of the Rambam were burnt in Montpellier in 1234 and in Paris 1242. Writes Rabhilal of Verona, who was an eyewitness to the burning of the Shas. He says, Hashem looked down from heaven and avenged the honor of our master, the Rambam, whose works Yana Chazaka and Mar Nebuchim were burnt. Says Rav Hillel, the Rambam was almost second only to Moshe Rabbeinu. And if you ask, how can we be sure that the burning of the Talmud was retribution for the burning of the works of the Rambam? Says Rav Hillel, this is the sign, <clears throat> this is the proof. Not even 40 days have passed between the burning of the works of the Rambam and the burning of the Talmud. On the very spot that the Rambam's works were burned, they burned the Talmud. The ashes of the Rambam's works mixed with with the ashes of the Talmud. And I tell you the truth, I was thinking about this this morning, and there's something not consistent over here. I just want to mention the destruction of the Talmud was a crushing blow to the ancient communities in France. And conditions worsened. Rabbi Chiel emigrated in 1260 with many of the French Tosafists and they settled in Acre and they established the Medrash Haggadah of Paris in Eretz Yisrael where <coughs> Rabbi Chiel of Paris is believed to have died in 1267. In 1306, the glorious chapter of Jewish history of medieval France came to a close when King Philip IX expelled the Jews from all of France. French Jewry that had enriched Torah legacy 
from the year approximately um, 1040 um, came to an, an end. French Jewry was no longer in 1306. So let me share with you my question. This is a brand new question. Something is not consistent over here. The Shibali HaLeket says, they made a She'elas Chalayim to determine why was the Talmud burnt in 1242. And the answer they received is, Da Gezeras Oiraisa, it's a decree, it's a Choyk, it has no reason. And on the other hand, Rabbi Hillel of Verona, who is standing there, said, there is no question. Why did this happen? This is not a mystery. In the very same spot where they burnt the works of the Rambam, they burnt the Talmud. This was a direct retribution from heaven to burn the Talmud. Mida Kenegan Mida. He said, this is the sign. This is the proof. Not even 40 days have passed between the burning of the works of the Rambam and the burning of the Talmud. So, question, is it a chayk? Or is it a punishment? Mida Kenegan Mida. It's a good question. It can't be both. It can't be a chayk and midah k'neged midah. Could it? So maybe you'll say the Shibale Haleket argues of Reb, on Rabbi Huda Verona. Of Rabbi Hillel Verona. Shibale Haleket says it's a chayk. Rabbi Hillel Verona says it's a punishment. Midah k'neged midah. By the way, Rabbeinu Yoyna took this lesson to heart and he accepted upon himself that because he spoke out so antagonistically against the Rambam, he has to do tshuva, and he accepted upon himself to defend the honor of the Rambam until he would get to Tiberia and personally beg the Rambam forgiveness at his grave. But what was troubling me again is how do we reconcile that which the Shibali Aleket writes, that it was a chayk, with the report of Rav Hillel of Verona, that it was a punishment, Mida Kenegan Mida. And I think this should take us back to the Paraduma. You know, on the one hand, the Paraduma is the quintessential chayk. It's Metaher es HaTmeim, or Metame es HaTahoyrim. It's the quintessential chayk. And Shlomo HaMelech thought he understood the reason for the Paraduma, he said, I thought I would become wise, but it's distant from me. So even Shlomo Amalek did not know the reason for the Paraduma. Only Moshe Rabbeinu knew the reason for the Paraduma. By the way, the Ben uh, Ashri says, Kairach um, perhaps cracked the code of the Paraduma. Kairach may have known the, uh, the reason for the Paraduma. And on the other hand, you look at Rashi, and Rashi quotes Rav Moshe Hadarshan. By the way, Rav Moshe Hadarshan was one of the sages of Narbonne in southern France. And Rav Moshe Hadarshan explains the whole, or the whole um, rationale for the Paraduma. Rav Moshe Hadarshan says, you know what the reason for the Paraduma is? The Paraduma, well, it's Metame the Tahirim. It's Metame the Tahirim. Just like the Egel, it rendered Kla Yisrael Tameh. But it's also metame the tahir. It's metaher the tameim because they use the ashes of the paraduma to purify those who worship the paraduma. 
they use the ashes of the egal to purify those who worship the egal. And the reason why you have to take three species, the azaiv, the, the three ingredients in the paraduma, is connected to the 3,000 Jews who died because of the egal. And the reason why you need Elazar Hakoyen to be involved in the Paraduma is because it can't be Aaron, because Aaron made the Egal. And the reason why the Paraduma has to be Tamima is because Klai saw before the Chedho Egal were Tamima. And the reason why the Paraduma cannot have a yoke on its neck is because Klai saw cast off the yoke of Shamayim. So here it is, Shloimah doesn't know the reason for the Paraduma, but Ramosha Adarshan knows the reason for the Paraduma. <coughs> I understand, Shlomo Melch couldn't figure out that the reason why the Paraduma is Metame Tahoyrim is because the Egal Meklai so Tame, and it's Metaher Tameim because the Egal was used to purify the Jewish people as well. So, what, what is the dichotomy over here? It's an exact parallel from the Chedho Egal. So, it's a great mystery. What was the mystery? What's the mystery of the Paraduma? Well, Shoma Melch didn't know Rashi. Rashi brings from Moshe Darshan. And I think the answer to this question is a very important principle. And that is, not every answer I don't, I'm not sure. Not every answer makes a question reconcilable. There are some things in this world that so trouble the mind and and stretch the imagination that even though you may be able to give an intellectual um, approach to reconcile seeming contradiction, it doesn't mean that it fully answers the difficulty of the question. The paraduma is a great dichotomy. You have someone who's tame mace and he's spritched with the ashes of the paraduma and that person is tar and the person who does the spritzing, he becomes tame. Say, so oh, I have a very simple reason. Because anybody who was involved in the ego became tame. But then they use the very ashes, the eagle, to make, okay, that's very nice. That, that might be a certain level of illustration of an example of something which is metame, the, the tahirim, and metara, the tameim. But that doesn't make it comprehensible necessarily how the paraduma ha- is able to operate through this dichotomy. And I think it's the same thing with Jewish tragedy. Just because Rabbi Hillel of Verona says, we know why the Talmud was burnt. It was burnt in the very same spot that the Rambam's works were burnt. Yes, so we know it's quid pro quo and it's midah keneged midah. That doesn't necessarily make it fully comprehensible why the Almighty would allow, allow something like that to happen. Yes, we understand there's a certain justice and there's a certain rationale but that doesn't necessarily make it fully comprehensible to the human mind. It's not a contradiction for something to be a chayk and for it to have elements of reason to it. 
just because Rashi quotes from Moshe Hadarshan, it doesn't mean the paraduma is not the quintessential chayk. A, a pshat, a approach, does not necessarily make it fully um, comprehensible by the human mind. That's what we see from the paraduma. Shlomo didn't understand it, and, and yes, Shlomo knew Rav Moshe Hadarshan's drush. Rav Moshe Hadarshan's approach does not necessarily allow the limited capacity of the human mind to fully comprehend the dichotomy of the paraduma. And we could say the same thing about the tragedy. We could say the same thing about the tragedy <coughs> of the burning of the Talmud in the 1242. Just because Rav Hillel of Verona gave the Jewish people an insight into why, what precipitated it. Yes, it was the outspokenness of the Gedolim against the Rambam. And that's why in the very same spot the Rambams were burned, the Talmud was burned. But does that really explain why the Ribbon Shom would allow the bulwark, the, the backbone of the Jewish people to be destroyed? I mean, without the Talmud, French Jewry was decimated. The whole tradition of the Ashkenazic Balitoids was ruined. These included newly published works of the Rishonim. So, okay, we have Mida Kenegemi, but that, that, does, that, does that really allow the human mind to comprehend what was taking place in the times of um, the tragedy of the burning of the Talmud? We know that there are various approaches toward the Holocaust and it is not my place to offer interpretation. I leave that to people much greater than myself. My grandfather, Zechasak Levracha, who was a survivor of all the dark places, Auschwitz, and I tell you, this morning I had the privilege to put on tefillin on my son Naftali, Nero Yayer, and I, I myself was very moved because uh, maybe you've heard the story about my grandfather, but my grandfather smuggled tefillin into one of the notorious camps in Teradam, and he put on tefillin every morning with his beloved brother, Hainach. And one morning, there was a, a particularly brutal lagerfuhrer, and if he would catch them putting on tefillin, they would be shot on the spot. And one morning, my grandfather put on tefillin at the crack of dawn that, that he would do every... Uh, morning, and then he gave the tefillin to Uncle Hainach, and Uncle Hainach put on the tefillin Shalyad, and as he's uh, about to put on the tefillin Shalroish, Ficus walked in, he sees this Sadik putting on tefillin, he picks up the pistol to shoot, but then when he got a good look on the tefillin Shalroish, he chapped a pachad, he chapped a sitter, he put down the gun and he ran out in fear. And I heard my grandfather tell the story. So to me, the mitzvah of tefillin uh, is very important, and to be able to to put on to my, on my son, realizing that I have this zechus because my grandfather was moiser nefesh to put on tefillin in the darkest places, and my grandfather never questioned Hakadosh Baruch Hu. when he was asked, you know, Rabbi, you saw the massacre of your brothers and sisters of European Jewry. Did you ever lose faith in the promises of the Torah? Did you ever lose faith in God? My grandfather said, did I ever lose faith? Yes, of course I lost faith. I lost faith in man. How could a civilized society like Germany shed their conscience 
how could United States and Great Britain, who knew the Jews were being gassed and they could have bombed the camps, they turned the other way and they bombed other areas. So yes, I lost faith in man, but my faith in God only became stronger. And again, I'm not here to give reasons. I'm, I would like to share one particular insight. We know in general, probably the opinion of most leading sages have been, has been the ways of God are mysterious, the ways of God are beyond comprehension, we cannot question um, the ways of heaven, and we cannot provide reasons for what happened um, from 1939 to 1945. I had the merit for uh, many years to go to Harav Victor Miller, Zechatzak Levracha, and he had a different approach to this issue. And he was very outspoken that uh, for the reasons for the Holocaust. And he would say that... And he would explain this in very great detail. He even uh, wrote a book about this... Um, which I believe I have. Uh, it's called Divine Madness. And he connects it to the origins of uh, reform in Germany and mass defection from the Torah lifestyle. And because of that, it was sort of a cleansing pl- process. And I'm not here today to inject my uh, opinion into this great matter. Um, I'm just presenting one particular insight. Namely, even in a situation where Gedolim provide reason for Jewish tragedy, it doesn't mean it's still not a chayk. It doesn't mean it's still not beyond human comprehension. That's the uh, insight I am offering, Ani HaKatan. Here you have the burning of the Talmud, where Min HaShamayim, they said it's a chayk, it's a statute. But at the same time, Rabbi Hillel of Verona said, I'm telling you why it happened. It's Mida, Keneged Mida, for destroying the works of the Rambam. So that gives us an approach that even when Gedoyal would say, Rav Miller would explain particular reasons for the Holocaust, that doesn't mean that, oh, how could he say that? How could he offer insight into the ways of heaven? That doesn't make what happened comprehensible to the human mind. It's still to our limited mind is a chayk. It's still beyond comprehension. And again, I'm not trying to um, take sides in this dispute. I'm merely offering the humble insight that the same way when it comes to para aduma, <laughs> Shloimei HaMelech ultimately did not understand the reason for the para aduma despite certainly knowing the insights and the approach of Ramosha Adarshan, which at first glance, it helps us uh, assimilate and understand the reason for the Para Aduma. So, um, certainly, Shamayim has its calculations for whatever transpires, and um, an important idea always to bear in mind, and uh, we'll end with this, is... When you see somebody suffering, let's say you see a poor man, it's not really your job to say, well, God made him poor because he must have sinned and he deserves it, so I'll let him suffer 
and I won't give him tzedakah because the ways of God are just and Hashem's a tzaddik and if the person's poor, then Shamayim was goyzer, he's poor. Who am I to challenge with? No, your job is actually to say, you know, look, why the Rebun Hashem has a calculation with this person, why this person has to be poor, why this person has to have a tzara, why this person is suffering, that's between them and the Rebun Hashem. My job is to alleviate the person's plight. So, unless you're a great Torah sage, and you're a God of Yisrael, it's your job, so to speak, to act to, in terms of practice, to say, yes, heaven decreed they should suffer, but heaven wants me to alleviate their suffering. Yes, there is a philosophical reason why this happened, but my job is not to be the philosopher, my job is to be the person who tries to mitigate and alleviate that person's situation. Okay, Rabbi Sai, I will see everybody again in two weeks. No, um, I'm not going to be with you next Monday. Hashem, uh, we'll be together the Monday before Tisha B'Av, and uh, we hope Tisha B'Av should be nishapich lanu, l'sasoinu l'simcha, ulamay adim toivim. Have a great day, everyone. Rachav atzlacha. Kol tov. Yes, Shlaimi.